0: I wanted JT to fail because he (laughs) stole that role from my boy, Aaron Carter, but you're
1: listening to a podcast created by the Jack's Way Collective. We're a group of friends who like to talk about philosophy, fiction, and whatever else is on our minds. Thank you very much for listening. Now let's get to the show. Welcome to episode 17 of the Jack's White Collective. Today it's uh, Yana, Brendan, and Sarah. Um, and we are actually reading Zadie Smith's Generation Y from her um, larger book of essays, Feel Free. So yeah, really excited about this one today. We just wanted to start off by talking to Sarah a little bit about why she brought the story to us and give us a little bit of backstory on who Zadie Smith is and uh, then we'll get into it. So Sarah, I understand that you happen to have met Zadie Smith oh
2: man i still feel kind of high from that event me choosing this essay and seeing zadie smith irl was kind of an accident like i was already going to see her and then it was my my choice to pick something to bring to an episode so it's like a fucking course i'm going to bring something with someone that i can see in real life you guys it was so good she is a true literary queen She's so young, she's 43 years old, which I did not know. She's a tenured professor at NYU, didn't know. When she wrote Generation Y, she was teaching or doing a fellowship at Harvard, did not know. I don't know how old she was, like 12, whatever.
0: (laughs) The math checks out, yeah.
2: (laughs) For sure. Um, But the event was really good. She was talking mostly about her book of essays, Feel Free. And yeah, she's brilliant, she's witty. She was engaging. It was one of the best live events that I've been to in a long time. Um, And it was put on through the Vancouver's Writers Fest. And this was the fastest event to sell out, like, ever in their history. It was definitely a packed house. And I got two books signed by her. And she is just as regal and gorgeous when she's speaking to you.
1: She's a badass then.
2: Yeah. Oh, and Julia Stiles was there. Which is just, like, a fun anecdote. Who Yana didn't know. (laughs) Who... Brendan thought it was from Modern Family. I thought
0: it was Julie Bowen, and then you brought up the picture, and I was like, oh, yeah, Julia Stiles. So I think the most important follow-up question is, how many times did you name drop the podcast in the book signing interaction? Did you say... You guys,
2: I think I was literally starstruck. There was a period for questions at the event, which I was like, okay, here's my chance to get like a good soundbite from her. You had to crawl your way through your row go down the aisle and get in front of a mic in front of the entire theater, which was like probably a thousand or so people.
1: Seems like a pretty small feat to promote the <laughs> podcast. <but. laughs> Very small feat.
2: Um, she did say my name out loud during the signing.
1: That's pretty cool. And I was okay. like
2: starstruck kind of. Because I already told you guys about how book signing works. You get a post-it, you put your name on it. You give the book to the author. They look at the post-it and sign your name. Zadie opens up the book. Sees my name, says, ah, Sarah, in her, like, lovely London accent, signs it. And I said, thank you very much. But, yeah, one fun fact that I learned, she was actually not born Zadie. Her name was Sadie, and she changed it to Zadie when she was 14. Because why the fuck not?
0: I'm amazed you didn't just, like, faint when she said your name. I would have gone so weak (laughs) in the knees and just, like... Flush in the face. You're
2: in a lineup for so long that you just, you know, you have time to, like, build up to the actual. Right. Yeah, so it was a really good event. She hates social media as much as she did when she wrote Generation Y.
1: Which was when?
2: 2010. So quite a long time ago. Yeah, she wrote it a while ago. Um, So
1: ahead of its time. Oh, my gosh. I
2: know. I know. I cannot believe it because so much of the social media that she hates now, like, wasn't even out yet. Like, I don't even think Instagram was a thing in 2010 yet. I don't think so. I know. So she still has a flip phone, is not on social media at all. She compares people who do use social media to uh, heroin users.
0: Wow. Damn. Damn.
2: I know, because one of the interesting questions from the moderator was, you know, you seem to have such a pulse on pop culture still. Like, you've read, Yana, some of her essays. Mm-hmm. And she definitely mm-hmm. does. So she's like, how do you stay, like, up to date with all of that and you don't choose to engage in any of, you know, social media. And she kind of compared it to, she enjoys a glass of wine in the evening, we you know, once a week or whatever, whereas we're all using heroin. We're on our smartphones all the time.
1: Damn. So like, I she'll set aside some time to like, go into the depths of the internet and see what the... Yeah,
2: or I guess, you know, she'll read like an entertainment article or... Mm. She's still like up to date with what's going on, but she did stress the importance of reading um, broadly. Mm. So, you know, don't just read New York Times bestsellers or don't be just reading like Canadian authors if you're Canadian or American, if you're American, like make sure you really stretch that out. And, you know, it's good to stay current. You can read current books, but it's also important to, you know, explore other titles from the past. So that was good. Um, And yeah, she talked about, displacement a lot too kind of because she's from London and she now lives in New York Um, as I mentioned she's a teacher there or also as she said moving from one dumpster fire to the other and she kind of mentioned just how the idea of nationhood or belonging to one country is kind of a pitfall and a trap like it's it's almost dangerous kind of to have too many ties or roots to a place because then you get all these extremists, you know, Brexit, the political situation in the States. So that was really interesting that she said that. Um, She mentioned that her son was born in the U S strictly by accident. She was literally too pregnant to go home and have him in the UK. But now he sees himself as American. Like he grows up with American history because he was born there and She said he literally could have been born anywhere. Like I could have gone home in time. He could have been born in Paris. So people, anywhere you're born, whatever like citizenship you are, that is purely accidental. And you shouldn't, you know, that's not the hill that you should die on, which was really interesting, I thought.
1: That is really interesting. And so like for me, I'm British and Canadian and like obviously grew up in Canada my whole life, but I still feel British in this deep sense, not just like yeah, you know, like I, like I certainly don't like Bangers and Mash, but I certainly feel um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not bad. But it's like the most
0: but stereotypical <laughs> thing
1: you could go for. <laughs> I was thinking tea and crumpets, but i don't no Bangers and Mash. Is I'm too no good. Churchill fan. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, here's the thing: is I am like I feel this deeper connection of my British side to someone like Winston Churchill or Britain then my canadian side does it all i guess my canadian side doesn't really connect to anything because i guess that's a bit of what being canadian is is right yeah um and so the only way that i get this whole connection to homeland and motherland is through my britishness even though i've never like lived there once in my life it's so strange and like would it have been different or Sadie smith's kid if they like if they said they were born in paris like
2: I know. Well, you guys know that I just did the 23 and me. Right. And got the results and it was just like, huh, okay. I don't really feel much of anything.
1: Would you do you think you would feel more strongly if you found out that instead of being like a kind of European mismatch of everything, you found that like actually no, you have a deep heritage in like one area and like 80% of your genes came there as opposed to like 20 20 15 Maybe.
2: Five. I think for everyone though, it's kind of natural that you want something to map onto. There's this oh, like true. deep longing to like belong somewhere. So you're just going to kind of like latch onto that wherever you can get it. Like you said, the Canadian experience is a little bit different. We're not as mm-hmm. like rah gusto as America is about their history.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But we're kind of like them and that we all kind of come from different places and have different backgrounds. But it's just, yeah, a much different experience, I think, here versus there.
0: It's kind of interesting that she talked about that—the uh, national identity—in the same way that she talked about the generation in the opening line of this piece, because that's like the very first thing that she does is she identifies how arbitrary the distinctions are between generations.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you
0: can't just set a certain time or date because it's a very gradual thing. And then, what is a generation, anyways? If it's something that's more along a spectrum. Great segue. Um, so yeah, like the story read is generation wide. Um,
1: it's, I guess, her take on kind of Mark Zuckerberg as a human being versus him kind of represented as a character in a David Fincher film, The Social Network. Um, and then yeah, speaks to things much more broadly, like this generational gap that you say, Brennan, that she feels being not so far removed in age from Mark Zuckerberg, yet it seems as if there's a chasm between their two mentalities. And so I guess she kind of delves into that. But you guys, good to take a quick little break here, and then uh, let's get into the story.
2: Yeah,
1: sounds good. All right, uh, we're back. So we um, we think a good spot for us to start to, to kind of dive into this to this essay is to actually just um, have a panel discussion on how we, each one of us use Facebook and like what kind of a tool it's become for us. And I guess like we can even broaden it out a little bit, um, since I know the three of us aren't really heavy users, but just kind of social media in general, what does it mean to you? What value does it provide? And like, what are some of the the things that you notice that, um, how it affects your life?
2: So I first got Facebook way back when, when only university students could use it Damn. you oh, needed to have man. like uh, a school email address to sign up for it so, so that you're was a veteran i know oh, my, oh god. my god i know those were what i referred to as the golden ages of mm. facebook it was very that's what it was meant for you know a college student makes this for other college students right. or kids it's all about your interests what you want to do Only you can be on it. It's very exclusive. Your mom isn't on it. Your fucking uncle isn't on it. (laughs) Like your kid brother isn't on it. It's just your friends. Um, And then, yeah, it was very much like a network. You could see your school network. So even if you weren't friends with people, you could still look at their profile if they were within your same university Mm. network. So, yeah, I went fucking apeshit over Facebook when it first came out.
1: And so, like, what, what were you doing on the platform? Just... Creeping?
2: Creeping. Yeah, creeping other people who went to your school, people who lived in your dorm, um, friending them, liking stuff, poking them. It quickly yep. became kind of a popularity thing, like, oh, how many friends on Facebook can you get? And right. writing all these inside jokes on people's walls and, like, using it as a means to flirt. You know, like university stuff, mm-hmm. posting parties, that kind of thing. It but sounds
1: so benign the way you talk about
2: it. Yeah, I know. That. I know. Um, but I don't know. I feel like as I got older, I kind of outgrew it a bit. And I I don't ever really use it anymore. I still have it primarily. So, like, people can instant message me, I guess. But as uh, Zadie points out, you can still do that just as easily with email. So I don't really know why I'm still holding on.
1: Yeah, that's the eternal question. <laughs> I think it just makes it so hard for you to, to really cut any ties as well. Even if you try and delete your account, like, it's still there. It's I know. And, there. like,
2: a big thing, too, in university was posting pictures on there mm-hmm. of, like, the weekend's parties. So you could see, okay, like, who was hanging out with who, who was partying, where right. you wanted to be seen. And now it's like, holy fuck, I hope I've untagged and deleted all of that. <laughs> because I, I do not want that out on the internet. Right. That's, like can be so damaging now to reputations for like things you did as a 19 year old kid
1: it's kind of like so counterintuitive right A sharing platform where Mm -hmm. like you don't want anything actual about your day-to-day life to be shared on it totally Uh, i think she touches on that in the essay as well What about you, brendan
0: well it's interesting that you mentioned like the whole facebook instant messaging and you can always send an email because i've always seen my email is like that's like the business side of things that's where I get bills that's where I get like I don't know like shipping notifications stuff (laughs) like that that's like your Amazon
2: order has been shipped exactly
0: professional things um so that's I kind of keep email as a non-personal entity and then Facebook messaging or WhatsApp messaging or Instagram messaging as a more personal entity um is it has more of like that personal touch of communication to it. Um, Honestly, I just use Facebook mostly just to, as like a calendar for like concerts and events and stuff. You know, you go on there, it's like an event has been posted in your area. You check it out, click interested if it interests you, see like what's going on in a week.
2: Actually, yeah, you're always interested in shit. I always see Brendan is interested in the following event in your area tomorrow.
0: Yeah, that's like 95% of my activity on there. The other 5% being like following bands or like Mm -hmm. pages of things that I like just to get updates on them. Right. And so would you guys say that you log into it every day?
2: No.
1: No? Yeah, I'd say I do. Just like once a day, quick check, interested in something, move on? Yeah.
2: Brandon, follow-up question for you. What are your privacy settings like? Like, can other people see, like, the bands and the pages that you like? Yeah, that's what Facebook wants you to not know.
0: But it also... (laughs) No response. (laughs) Well, like, I mean, if if people want to know that about me, I'm not going to hide it from them. I, I don't really care about my privacy settings on Facebook because there's nothing on Facebook that I would not want to be... There's nothing on Facebook that I would want to keep private.
2: A coworker of mine was creeping on my Facebook the other day for some reason to find, like, an embarrassing screenshot of me for something team-related. And he was like, oh, Sarah, you're a big Elton John fan. And I'm like, <laughs> what? I guess. I, I'm really, like, diligent about making sure my stuff is private because I don't want anyone on there, like, other than my friends, obviously. Um but for some reason, there was still a little banner at the bottom where my likes and interests were still visible to like strangers. So anyone could see them, and I forgot that that existed. Again, something that I probably haven't updated since I was 19. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, there's the dumbest shows and movies on here. Do we have a list? I think I deleted them. Oh, I know. Okay. As soon as like Derek went on there, I was like, fuck, gotta get rid of this."
1: Um, the essay does mention Mark Zuckerberg's list of uh, original <laughs> Facebook <laughs> interests. Do we want to ring
0: ring those off over yes, here? Yes, please. This is why you keep it private. <laughs> so
2: work. his old list of Facebook page interests were minimalism, revolutions, and eliminating desire. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Is that not like the most robotic interest you could possibly have? Is eliminating desire? <laughs> like, finally, you'll understand what it's like to be me—a
2: <laughs> robot who revolts, but in a minimalist way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he doesn't like a single band. He doesn't like a single brand or item or anything.
0: But he likes smoking meats. <laughs> Why was that not one of his interests? <laughs> Oh, God. I mean, do, do you want to tell the smoking meat stories in case this... I mean, I have no
1: story. I'll, I'll play the clip. I'll play the clip maybe right here of this hilarious video of... Oh, wait, you know what it, what it was? It was when Facebook Live launched. Yeah. Right. It's when, like, you were able to just, I don't know, live stream whatever's going on at random times in your day, just constantly at all times. And I guess my question, I'm sure many other we questions... Because they were trying to keep
2: up with the Joneses, a.k.a. Instagram.
1: Yes, of course, of course. Like, well...
2: And Snapchat. Snapchat. I guess
1: Snapchat's a more close one. Um, But, like, my question when I hear of a feature or something like this, like, what are you ever going to use that for? And I guess lots of people have that question, too. So Mark Zuckerberg trying trying to show how useful and awesome a tool like this is. There's a 12-hour, I think, Facebook live stream of him smoking meats <laughs> in, his background, in his backyard. And so I'll just play a quick clip of a supercut of every single time in that 12 hours he said the words, smoking those meats. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny, it's so, so good. We are live from my backyard where I am smoking a brisket and some ribs. I am, I'm making meats now, smoking these meats here
0: or a little meat smoking.
1: It's smoking. So, I'm the meat chef. Yeah, someone asked me, do I smoke meat? Smoking meat, smoking these meats. Smoking meats earlier in the day. Smoking these meats, just set the charcoal up and you set the the wood chips up and then smoking meats, grilling, grilling
0: meats. You know, there was one interesting little tidbit in there that I realized, which was when we were talking about Facebook, the fact that connections on Facebook is referred to as friends, we literally had a conversation with the three of us as friends. We're sitting around the table saying are we friends? <laughs> and it was solely based on. the. existential
2: crisis. Are we friends? <laughs> are we connections?
0: Now we're just business partners.
2: Cobos?
1: <laughs> okay. So the story um, the story starts uh, I don't even know if I should call it a story. The essay. Yes. The essay starts with Zadie kind of giving a description of the opening scene of uh
0: uh the social, social network. network
1: um movie by david fincher um and i guess it's not the very very beginning but she talks a lot about the whole interaction between uh what's it jesse eisenberg is that his name yeah and the woman um and her personality and i guess like the whole kind of
2: erica she has a name that's her character
1: I didn't played by
0: rooney mara i didn't yes. know that at the time uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really should have rewatched the movie. um,
1: Yeah, I think, like, the whole, like, one thing I want to kind of touch on here is, like, Zadie Smith's kind of efforts to show that whatever is being represented in this movie about who we think Mark Zuckerberg is actually doesn't really map onto who he probably is in real life. He's, like she says, a Generation 1.0's idea of what a Generation 2.0 person would be, Mm -hmm. right?
2: Okay, but no, you're right. His motivation, like, movie, Mark Zuckerberg's motivations seem to be more in line with, like, what we would imagine them to mm-hmm. be. Fame, money, sex, whatever, mm-hmm. power.
1: What, what are his motivations? Like, what does she think they are? It's connection, right? It seemed to be as if she thought, or at least his quote was, yeah, like, just it's for connection, for connection's sake.
2: I don't know, but doesn't she also point out that, like, what his idea of what he thinks connecting or friends are is very disjointed from kind of what we would think it is? Mm-hmm.
0: A good it's point. simple. Yeah. Very simple.
2: Yeah, totally. I think she has one quote in there that, like, Facebook is basically, like, being trapped in the the mind of a sophomore, like Harvard right, student. Right, right,
1: right. I think I might have pulled that quote. This is very interesting. It says she says, It feels important to remind ourselves at this point that Facebook, our new beloved interface with reality, was designed by a Harvard sophomore with a Harvard sophomore's preoccupations. And so I guess this is the part of the essay where she's kind of describing like what is now so ubiquitous and so big and the way that we interact with each other online actually just comes from this one man's very simple idea of what connection is like, like you said. And so because he happens to have been a coder that has disseminated his idea so vastly and so far and wide, it is now like a prime consideration in our lives about how we are connected to other people. And so I just, yeah, I thought that was very interesting. And she kind of, to give an analogy, she talked about the MIDI system in music, like digital music about how, it was actually just a very simple way, was it back in the 70s or 80s, um, to digitally record a bunch, of, uh, a bunch of different sounds and then have them on the computer. And actually the MIDI system was really bad at capturing like a huge number of sounds. And, but because it was so ubiquitous in computers and software at the time, it's still today the way that we use like sound recording, we use the same kind of infrastructure. And so the same kind of thing applies here. Something very simple that misses out on so much, just as Mark Zuckerberg's connection, idea of connection misses out on so much, is now what we're dealing with today. It seems as if like so much has been lost and we might not even realize it. We think of Facebook as just kind of this massive thing, but actually, yeah, it might just be the brain of, like the brainchild of one, one strange human being.
0: And to go back to that media example, while it is a simplification and the fact that the authentic is always going to be better. You're never going to choose the MIDI of, like, string instruments over the authentic string instrument that has the warmth of the wood and its own little idiosyncrasies that make it a special, unique experience. While no one will feel a natural drive to the MIDI, uh, it also opens up that avenue for a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have access to those experiences or abilities. And I think that's something that... um, it's is important to keep in mind with Facebook is that there are going to be some of these socially awkward people who they almost need that simplification of the human experience and human interaction. And those are the ones that are going to feel most, more, most of a draw to the social media because that makes that connection accessible. It makes it uh, usable and it makes it something that's palatable to their own personality traits.
1: It's pretty crazy that like so much of the ways in which we all interface with each other, whether it be through Facebook or any other form of online communication or just even using computers or any form of technology is all kind of the brainchilds of this similar clump of, not to lump them all together, but this, they all come from a similar kind of part of the world, Silicon Valley era. They all have similar styles of education. They're all pretty similar demographics. Of course, like everyone has a different personality, but again, they're kind of falling into this very narrow range Uh, And so this is the mindset that is actually disseminated so far and wide and just really is the primary interface between which all of us communicate with each other. Um, So when you think about it like that, it's just a little bit more, I don't know, for me, it just becomes a little bit more inauthentic. It doesn't seem as real to me because it's easier for like the kind of curtain to fall on something like Facebook when I make that realization. Like, all it is is just this big, massive thing that's built upon one, like, honestly, what was he, 20 years old at the time? Like, one 20-year-old kid's idea of what the world should look like and how we should connect with each other.
2: Did you guys end up reading any of Jeron Lanier's stuff?
1: I didn't, no.
2: He Um, had some great quotes in the essay, though. Brendan and I Googled him. He looks crazy. Does he? (laughs) Well, not crazy. He looks like an interesting dude. He's got, like... The white dude dreadlocks.
0: No. Jerron. No, Jerron. No, Joe j a r J-A-R-O-N. Good um, teamwork for that one. <laughs> <it's, ones. laughs> oh, wow. Damn. Yeah, okay, I okay. know. Huh?
2: He's like an artist, a computer scientist. Like, But he. some of his quotes in the essay were like my most favorite and made me really be like, damn, Jerron, you're right. Like one of his arguments is like in Facebook – As with other online social networks, life is turned into a database. And this is a degradation, um, which he says is based on a philosophical mistake, the belief that computers can presently represent human thought or human relationships. So he seems to argue that, like, Mark Zuckerberg has made this mistake. He thinks that this can be, like, a substitute for human relationships or what have you. And Zadie's like, no, 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 back the hell up. Right. That can never happen.
0: He's also had like a couple of TED Talks and a common theme across all of them is this notion of like computers were supposed to be this liberty that would give us new avenues of expression, new avenues of creativity. But instead, what we've done is try to impose humanity on computers and thus lost an aspect of humanity that which does not translate over because of that. Yeah, that
2: dude is cool.
0: Very a crazy, insightful.
2: But cool. Um, one of his books is called "You Are Not a Gadget.":
0: I think he also has one that's called like, "Oh yeah, 10 arguments <laughs> for deleting your social media accounts right now.": Yes. Here's another quote for him or from him.
1: Uh, at the end of the essay here it says, "These designs came together very recently, and there's a haphazard accidental quality to them. That's, that is the designs of these social interfaces that we use. Resist the easy grooves that guide you into. If you love a medium made of software, there's a danger that you will become entrapped in someone else's recent careless thoughts. Struggle against that. That's beautiful.
2: Damn drawn, that's deep.
1: When I'm thinking about softwares that we use all the time and every day, we are so often slaves to the update. We have no power against that. Um, If we think that a new Facebook update is going to make it harder for me to interact with my... Uh, connection on Facebook, we think that that's just it. That we think that that's all we can do when in reality, no, we are just inside of this funnel that we can just step outside of and have a different totally type of human connection with them um, outside of this this interface that might have been, like Belenier says, someone else's recent careless thoughts, right? Even the brainchilds of these softwares, but also the people working on them, again, coming from the same part of the world with these kind of brought up with these same ideas it's a kind of feedback loop, and it's very easy to kind of have a, I mean, I guess, like a monoculture, a mono way of thinking about all of these things. And they're, it just kind of keeps, keeps getting redoubled down and reinvested into the same software over and over again. So this whole, I don't know if I would, I wouldn't call it an ideology, but this whole idea just kind of gets reified over and over again to no escape. It's very dark.
0: One of the things that I felt most impressed with with the paper was the fact that it introduces its subject matter through the discussion of the social network, the movie. And in doing so, it points out the absurdity in uh, aligning Mark Zuckerberg in the movie with Mark Zuckerberg, the individual, because in, in a two-hour-long narrative that is trying to depict uh, an elongated period of time, you have to simplify not only a lot of the events and occurrences, But you need to simplify the characters into easily consumable facets of the story. So Sean Parker wasn't Sean Parker. Sean Parker was like this paranoid dude that was eccentric and just going off of the wire. Um, they, They heavily reduce a lot of these characters to the role that they play within the narrative that they want to convey. So we are seeing this Mark Zuckerberg that is a very simplified version of who he is reduced to these main characteristics which coincidentally enough is exactly what facebook is doing to ourselves we are simplifying ourselves to these these roles that we want to define for ourselves whether that be our interests or the events that we go to or the photos that we're tagged in it's all about facilitating an extremely simple consumable pill of a personality that we can all take to better understand somebody and that's exactly what you do when you try to translate a real story over to a narrative You have to simplify the characters. Mm -hmm. So not only did Zadie Smith uh, illuminate that sort of relationship between the actuality and the narrative that's based on it, but in doing so helped uh, further the argument that she was making against social media as those oversimplifications of who we are.
1: Right. I think these platforms are like so much... They're much like Mm anti-complexity. It's all about reductionism. It's all about taking what you think about one thing and just... Reducing it to a like or an interest, or you see a photo and yeah, I like that, or uh, I'm just going to poke you, as opposed to have any sort of complex relationship with you. Um,
0: these things are really just like the most reductionist ways that we can interact with each other at all. And with you being the marketing individual that like goes and does like the marketing automation on Facebook through Google, um, and you as well with the copywriting, I'm sure you both know that like you can't market to complexity. Marketing to complexity is way too hard. It's mm-hmm. too multifaceted. You need to market to the simple because that's when you know you're going to hit the mark. Of course. Um, and I think that...
2: Marketing mark. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the funky
1: bones.
2: It's so crazy because Instagram took what Facebook did and reduced even further.
1: Yeah, now it's like basically.
2: no interests. It's literally just photos, maybe like brief text underneath Mm -hmm. but like photos portraying this narrative that like may or may not be fucking true you could hear about these like russian influencers who will literally rent a jet like not to fly but to simply go in there and take photos to act like they're living this like jet set lifestyle and then that company just has like a steady stream of influencers coming in, taking photos aboard this jet that is literally just sitting on the tarmac or probably in the hangar, that's what we've become. Damn. What? I
0: finally got to the point where I, I cleared out all of my non-personal people that I follow on Instagram like a couple of months ago because I realized I was selectively choosing to be marketed to. I was self-selecting like the own marketing resources that were being sent to me. Because I, I was following pages mm-hmm. about like... Uh, you know clothing, fashion, hiking, outdoors, rock climbing and every single one had some motivation that was a marketing motivation and I was self-selecting the ads whereas uh, you know they have to use these algorithms to try and dictate who's going to see what ads and what kind of client base you might fall under uh, I was simplifying the whole process of them. I was taking out all the guesswork, eliminating all the guesswork by saying, here I am, this is what I like now serve it to me Now feed me basically. yeah I my know. mouth is wide open.
2: Even again, like my Instagram account is private so like not everyone can follow me, but you're still being targeted regardless just about the pages that you view, mm-hmm. regardless of whether you even follow that person or not, mm-hmm. you don't have to click follow or like just simply being on there and viewing it just like plants a little flag there.
0: And I think there was a huge controversy that was kind of around that where they changed it from being chronological to being like some sort of popularity algorithm Mm -hmm. to try and put the most promoted material to the top. But of course that's subject to a lot of external influence, a lot of monetary influence. So they changed the system away from the simple, here's everything in a chronological order to like, here's what you most want to see. And of course it was the corporate promoted Mm -hmm. things that was always at the top.
1: Yeah, then your your news feed or your Instagram feed becomes like strangely catered towards you know what is going to get a reaction out of you, what is going to draw your attention, and what is going to uh, be relevant for you to buy. In a weird way, the whole chronological thing—it's it, much more democratic. It's like it just kind of gives your actual Facebook or your Instagram social network a chance to like be seen.
2: Yeah, at um, the time I'm like. I'm on Instagram way more than I am on Facebook. Half the time I'm missing out on shit that my friends, my real fucking friends who I want to see are posting because I have to, like, get through all this mm. influencer, brand, whatever stuff first before I get to, oh, shit, this person posted two days ago. Didn't see it or like it until now.
1: I'm just thinking about now, like, this this whole story you told me about the woman with the jet. And, like in the same way this whole platform has influenced like the way that we like other things or interact with other things, it seems to have totally changed the way that people want to receive, want to be on the receiving end of that as well. Like I'm sure that before Instagram or before Facebook or anything like that, there would be no incentive for someone to even want to get a bunch of likes and go so far as to go on a jet for that. Like it's actually not only changed like our interactions and how we send, things out and how we represent ourselves the internet but it's changed our desires as well that desire is a pure the desire to go onto a jet and take a photo or even just to go down to the beach and like cross your legs and open a book and take a photo there like (laughs) that desire is also a product of this this software as well or i mean am i wrong to think that
2: no i don't think so it's it's not even that you seen right yeah you don't even necessarily want to do these things. You might not want to be at the beach or be on a jet, but you want people to think that you are. Cause that's like some weird status symbol. Why? Did Mark Zuckerberg envision this?
1: He just wanted to- Doubt it. Talk to college girls.
2: He just wanted to, yeah, talk to college girls, hang out with his friends, smoke meat. (laughs)
1: whatever you know infinite well to go back to (laughs) um okay like I think this is a great time to kind of transition uh we've like done a ton of shitting on um these platforms but I think Sarah's got an article for us that kind of pushes back against some of these things um from the Atlantic
2: okay yeah I thought I did read the article and they do make some good points but overall was a little weak I think anything's going to be weak when, you know, go head to head with Zadie Smith. And but it, like
0: she's bringing Jaren yeah, in, as the back of our I know, I
2: know. So basically, the article kind of had, like, three main arguments. What's
0: it called? We'll put it in the show
2: notes. Um, it's from The Atlantic. I think we'll, it's just
0: called, like, A Response to Zadie Smith's definition Yeah, it's, okay. Yeah,
2: it, and that's literally what it is. It's just a response. So the first argument is, well, writers and academics don't like social media anyways, because... Of, like, the aesthetic revulsion. They think it promotes bad grammar, all the LOLs. They just, like, think it makes, degrades language. Okay. makes it look like a hot mess. Do
1: we want to go one at a time, or do we want to go all three and then...
2: We can do all three. Okay. I just kind of have them in bullet points.
1: Gotcha.
2: Um, their argument, too, um, was a sampling bias. So they think because Sadie teaches, she's looking at how, like, young 20-something people use social media. She thinks that's how all people use social media. So, like, that's a flaw. Mm -hmm. And then number three, um, because Zadie Smith is a celebrity, her experience on social media is never going to be the same as mine or yours. um, Because she might want to be a private person, but because she's so successful and like, the nature of her work, like, that disallows it. So that kind of also contributes to her feelings towards it. So the Atlantic claims. Because
0: we all have the privilege where, like, we've all chosen to keep it selective, Yeah. We've made it a platform where it's just for people that we know. She doesn't have that ability, right? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, totally.
0: It was actually, like, another point. Right. Because he was talking about, like, um, being able to, like, bring humanity to it.
2: Right. He said, I think, that it doesn't degrade people because people are always going to evolve with Mm -hmm. whatever.
1: But... Yeah.
2: yeah. Weak. Weak.
1: Technological determinism, as we, we say. Um, I, I feel the aesthetic revulsion as well.
2: Yeah. Cause personally. she, she points goes, to that like example about the girl writing on a deceased friend's wall being like, miss you baby angel, like littered with all these like typos. That, that is not a
1: small thing at all. And you know, it goes, it's done, it goes so far beyond something like grammar. Like yeah. for me, the aesthetic revulsion is like the bulk of why I would not even want this.
2: The worst offender, which I don't think any of us use, and we haven't even touched on, is Twitter. Like, Twitter, the worst fucking grammar, the most arguing, the worst trolls. It's just a literal shithole of the internet. And that's, for me, is where, like, the aesthetic revulsion is strongest, I think.
1: And so, like, what was he pointing to, to, to rail against, like, saying, like, where is the aesthetic beauty in on these platforms?
2: Just probably the same old, like language is always evolving. Like, let it evolve. Blah, blah, blah. Don't be snobby. Don't be stuck in your...
0: But he he was basically saying it's the thought that counts. Like, if these people are reaching out and interacting and having some sort of emotional reaction, whether it be because of, like, an example, someone having died, or whether it's just reaching out and communicating with someone else, that's Mm -hmm. a human connection. And the aesthetic that it takes on should not be important. However... I think that also glosses over the fact that it's a simplified connection and the simplified communication, it makes complex emotions harder to process because you're boiling it down mm. to a very superficial consumption. The loss of a friend... I don't think should ever be reduced to a post on a wall. Granted, we don't know the backstory of what's going on, but having a more of a complex interaction gives more of an opportunity Mm -hmm. to work through some of these things that may be troubling. I think having these more superficial connections is going to make the repression of emotion and the processing of that emotion a lot more difficult because of that. And
1: I guess like it seems as if the only reason these... Like, you're like, okay, there is value in the human emotion regardless. The fact that the medium through which they send it, like, perverts it or makes it look aesthetic. Because they
2: spell it angle mm-hmm. instead of angel.
1: Yeah, like, it shouldn't, you shouldn't miss out on the fact that they still had this inside of them. And though even though it's represented a little bit differently, um, yeah. or, like, not the most aesthetically beautiful way, like, you shouldn't take a, take throw the baby out with the bathwater, basically. But from what I understand, like, it is perverted and it is reduced and it is like gotten worse specifically because of the platform, right? That's the only reason that the fact that everyone yeah. has these human emotions and they get perverted, it is because of the platform. So to use that argument as a way to like alleviate the platform's responsibility, it seems backwards to me. Like it wouldn't even be reduced in the first place if this platform for reduction wasn't provided to them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like, to me, that like that the argument falls apart for me. And also, it's again, it's so far beyond yeah. spelling, right?
2: And that's just, like, another argument, too. Like, this issue of the platform. Like, people seem to think it's, like, their right to have their platform. Like, no, it's a responsibility. Like, you are putting mm. stuff out into a public sphere. Like, you still have to be responsible about it. I don't know. Go on. Mm. I'll so
1: follow-up question on that. Like, oh, that's a whole bunch of can of worms. Let's find <laughs> a flag there. Let's <laughs> point a flag there. find a flag there.
2: Otherwise, we'll... We'll get going on a tangent, mm-hmm. and we'll never
1: recover. Mm-hmm. I actually think that's a great intro discussion for something else. OK. For something else. but. Plant. The
0: responsibility of the platform is like the individual on the platform, or the responsibility of the platform itself? I was thinking the latter.
2: I was thinking both.
0: Intro then we can have two amazing two. discussions. Done.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, OK. But yeah, like, do you see what I mean? Like, th- that's the reason why you get angry at it in the first place, right? Like, and
2: the article doesn't specifically say it, but they're almost like hinting at like a little bit of classism kind of. Mm. Like, oh, that's not how like professional writers or moonlighting bloggers, sick burn, um, writes. So that's how like normal people write.
1: Yeah. I, <sighs> okay. Okay. What's number
2: two? Uh, the sampling two. bias. Sampling bias. Whatever. fair fair maybe that was fair in 2010 but like now everyone's using facebook so i don't even think that argument is really relevant anymore when she did write the essay and when facebook first came out it was predominantly 20 somethings using social media but then it's caught on so
0: so with yana being the youngest of the group you could probably enlighten us the most on, like, how, how young people were using Facebook. Do you honestly? Because from my perspective, I think, like, I see the old people on Facebook, and I'm like, that's the most fucked up interactions of all
2: <laughs> people. Yeah.
0: That's the one where, like, the grandma posts on, like, the new profile photo of, like, her granddaughter saying, oh, by the way, grandpa's dead. It's like, no social awareness whatsoever. It's, it's fucked up. Uh, racist relatives, anybody. Like, it's... The older people are are coming to the social media with almost more of a social awareness detachment because while they may be socially aware of actual human interaction, social situations, Mm -hmm. they don't understand, like, the etiquette and, like, what you touched on earlier, like, the responsibilities of being on that platform.
1: And it's... Yeah, you're right. It's almost worse because you're... You look at both ends. Like, the very young and the very old is, like, the most unprepared to use these platforms yeah. mm-hmm. but at least the young ones are, are kind of being brought up in an environment where they're going to learn over time and they have yeah. forms in place they're like nurtured to succeed on that platform mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but yeah these old people who like get down spiral through <laughs> some like meme channel or like some
2: they're on um, level 34 of animal farm why <laughs> <laughs> is
1: this being
2: posted in 2019 <laughs> Whatever that dumb farm game was called. Farmville. Farmville. Farm Bill.
0: Farm Bill. Bill. Oh. Uh, Farmville. Animal Farm. Sorry,
2: not to be confused with yeah. the book. <laughs>
1: just... Farmville is based on the book. Did you know? That?
2: I had no idea. Never played it. What?
1: Okay. Well, that to answer your question, Brendan, like that is what
2: But Adam I. But I had an aunt who played it a lot,
1: so. That was like so terrifying. Like, the the way that so Snapchat builds off of this psychology as well. The fact that you have to harvest your farm bill crops every single day, people literally give away their passwords to get someone else to log onto their Facebook to farm their crops because the thing and the same thing with Snapchat is snap streaks. Yeah, yes. Maintaining snap streaks right. between children right. like they go for hundreds and hundreds of days and they don't they don't want to get rid of them. Right.
0: What I didn't a way? Even know that was a thing. Like what That's get like? People, infrequently, like, um, I was Snapchatting people. I didn't even realize that was a thing until someone told oh, me yeah. about it's, it after having for like two years. It's literally like
1: giving a drug addict, like a little hit of morphine, like once a day, like you got to fucking have it, right? Like there's <laughs> no, what a way to get people to come back to your platform.
2: Yes. We are the heroin users.
1: Yeah. appreciate it. Preach it. And so, I mean, we've kind of gone off the rails coming back to the sampling bias, like does he go into more depth about, like, okay, Zadie Smith's experience is just different, and because it's different, that means everyone else's is, like, going to be
0: much better than hers? Like, why would you I assume know. that outside of the sample, it's going to be better rather than exactly. worse? Exactly. Yeah, the no, thing. I know. That's the thing that I hated most about that argument was, like, you're really giving these people no credit. You're you're typecasting them based off of their age and, like, saying this is the demographic. Mm-hmm. And that's falling into the exact same trap that Zadie talked about with the nationalism that you talked about earlier, mm-hmm. as well as the generation identification. Mm-hmm. By doing such, like, a really, really bold overstatement of simplicity and imposing these characteristics on these people, you're trying to, like... You're trying to provide a counter argument through such a real superficial assumption? She teaches at a really prestigious university. It's I think not, she
1: knows about sampling glass.
0: <laughs> it's not just gonna be yeah. like baseline teenager demographic. Yeah, okay. Throw that one out the window. Three?
2: Throw them all out the window. Like,
0: yeah. I mean, we're of course all biased. I and, mean, of course, I know, of course,
2: of course we are, but I did want to bring like a secondary source to be like, okay, what are some counterpoints? Mm. But that's gonna um, the
1: best possible interpretation. Yes.
2: Okay. So the third one is um, because Zadie Smith is maybe not a celebrity, but you know, she's a person or a public figure. Her experience on social media is going to be different than ours. So a lot of like her gripes, I guess, with it is the privacy aspect. Mm. She unfortunately like loses that. She's not going to have that just because of who she is, the line of work that she does, the nature of her work. So that's the third argument.
1: Probably also like something like the the volume of receiving like criticism or like hate Mm -hmm. or fan mail railing against you or just shit directed at you from all directions that you have no choice but to be exposed to. Like, of course, it's amplified for someone like her that wouldn't apply to anyone like us.
2: And like a lot of the times I think writers become writers because they don't want to fucking deal with people, you know, and I've heard many writers speak about this at different events that I've gone to. It used to be you would write something, you would deal with your editor, then you'd deal with a publisher. Maybe you would go to like a book launch party, like in a a city, do that thing. But now a lot of them are expected to engage online, to have social media platforms, to like self-promote their own work do, like, multi-city tours of all this stuff.
1: They have to become marketers, basically. Yeah,
2: they right. have to They have to become marketers, and they have to market themselves, which, for an introverted writer, it would be really fucking cringy. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. ugh.
1: The best criticism, I think, of all of them. Yeah. Um, but, I, I mean, I guess I would go to the same thing I just said about the sampling bias, is, like, privacy is an issue for everyone, right? Privacy is, like, whether inside of Zadie Smith's bubble or any other famous person's mm-hmm. bubble or outside of it. It doesn't get any better, right?
0: Um, and beyond that, like, that's taking a very individualistic approach to the discussion mm, as opposed to a societal one. Very so true. Zadie's yeah. trying to be prescriptive in saying, like, is this what's best for society? Are we getting ourselves down a path of social degradation? Whereas he's like, no, nah, you're just a celebrity. It's, don't worry about it.
2: Yeah. Ah, <laughs> but- uh, your experience isn't the same as ours. Well, like, kind of it is. We still have eyes in the sky mm-hmm. watching and getting marketed and you know every day there seems to be some new thing that comes out about like privacy laws and well actually you thought this was private but it's not so
1: and I never got the impression in Zadie Smith's essay at all that she was writing from her own individual perspective in the first place. Like Brown said, she's doing a kind of societal critique. So then to critique her on her personal experience is not even when she's arguing in the first place.
0: Yeah.
2: So suck it, The Atlantic.
0: Yeah. And I think it also falsely imposes a sense of power on an individual that they can dictate their own social media experience. Mm -hmm. But no, they can't. No. There are so many facets of social media experience, whether it be the advertising or the fact that you're interacting with everybody else, that so much of it is out of your control. Just as like any type of conversation between you and myself would be out of our control. I actually, actually there was there was one thing that Zadie Smith did in her paper that really pissed me off. Because she, like she was referring to like person First
2: criticism, I yep. like yeah. it. It's- yep,
0: here we go, he's coming in hot. Damn. Spicy tail. No here up against. Okay. So um, she does so much to differentiate like Person 1.0, Person 2.0, mm-hmm. uh, like the separate generations. She she talks about Generation Facebook, and there's a quote in it where she's talking about watching Social Network, and she says it's a Generation Facebook instinct to expect, and then in brackets, hope question mark that a pop star will mm-hmm. fall on his face in the cinema, but Justin Timberlake or Sean Parker neatly steps over that expectation. What the fuck was up with that? Like,
2: well, it is a film review.
0: But, like, is is that honestly a generation thing that we want pop stars to fail in movies? That so, seemed like it was a completely unexpected jab. It's a shot, unsubstantiated. right? Unsubstantiated. It was just, like, super petty. Eh, uh,
2: I'm, da- I'm down for the petty.
0: No, I think it detracts from the argument, though, yeah. Like If you're going to make an argument about... Whatever, like, all the things that she's talking about, don't do these things that are going to differentiate people and put them against you because mm-hmm. of some totally superfluous... But them ammo.
2: in, like, frame just strictly as a film review, when you do see that, like, a model slash singer slash somebody who is not an actor is playing a role in a film that's, like, kind of predominant, don't doesn't the thought kind of run through your mind like, wonder how this is going to be, or, like...
0: But that's not the expectation or hope of them falling in yeah, the face. Yeah, no, It's I... curiosity about... Yeah. Are they actually able to do that? Is it too much outside of their bounds?
2: Okay, yeah, I get that.
0: Yeah, I didn't catch it didn't, until you just said it. I never
1: even thought of this as a film review. It's um, just... But, it, it, like, now, I guess it makes sense to me when you say that it is, why it would be in there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But, it's...
1: like, at the same time, I agree with Brendan's, like, it is a bit of a shot.
0: It's one of the most frustrating things I find with some of these uh, with some of these arguments that are being made that are trying to make... Take, like, a very objective approach to the discussion. Don't separate people and don't try to have an opposition if you're trying to make an all-encompassing point.
2: Don't fuck with Brendan's boy, Justin Timberlake.
0: <laughs> well, actually, I was a Backstreet Boys fan, so, I mean, like... I wanted JT to fail because he stole that role <laughs> from my boy, Aaron Carter, but- Ew,
2: Aaron Carter versus JT? Are you shitting me?
0: Well, I mean, okay, then who was the front- who was like the JT of the Backstreet Boys? Well, there wasn't one.
2: Okay, but-
0: NSYNC was JT's boy band. Backstreet Boys was bigger than the sum of their parts. It was yeah. more than just the individuals.
2: I feel like Backstreet Boys had more attractive individuals. And Sync
0: was just like riding on. I mean, I'm GT. not attra- I'm not attracted to any of them, but I will say that Backstreet Boys, as a group, right as yeah. a group, performed better and more harmonized. They were a group, and they still are to this day. They are still performing. They're still friends because they were more than just a couple of talented individuals getting together to do a boy band with one shining star in the middle. JT was the star on the top of the Christmas tree. Everyone else was just a bunch of cable lights fucked up with a couple of burnt out bulbs. Backstreet Boys? Oh my God, Backstreet Boys was a perfectly balanced salad where you get the crisp crunch of the romaine, a nice crunchy crouton. <laughs> Aaron was the dressing. <laughs>
2: Who was the bacon? <laughs> the
0: bacon bits sprinkled on top. No, no, no. AJ? No bacon because it
1: was <laughs> palatable to everybody. You had to keep it vegetarian.
0: Hey, men. Huh. Favorite track? <laughs> oh, man. It's so hard to choose a favorite Backstreet Boys track because the cliche ones are always the best choice.
2: Yeah.
0: Which is why I got to go with I Want It That Way.
2: Yeah. That Yeah.
0: Do you want me to tell you why?
1: oh god okay
0: Okay. yeah
1: shall we wrap it up
2: let's wrap Mm -hmm. it up
0: so that does it for us here from Sarah Yana and myself that was episode 17 of the Jack's Way Collective if you love it let us know if you like it let us know if you hate it you're dead to us my apologies but still let us
2: know because we need that engagement
0: (laughs) please let us know uh, if you have any sort of piece that you'd like to recommend that you would like us to cover or want to engage with us in any way, do it through Gmail. We're old-fashioned like that, the Jacksway Collective at gmail.com. You can still find us on Facebook, but will it be up for much longer to be determined? We might get kicked off
2: after (laughs) this episode. Yes,
0: seriously. Mark Zuckerberg's going to send us a scathing message. Well, you got a problem with my meats? We're on Spotify. We're on iTunes. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. And we look forward to having you next time. Peace.
2: Bye.